Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Something's Not Right is primarily listener funded. If you enjoy our show and would like to help us offset research and production costs, please consider becoming a Something's Not Right Patreon subscriber. Among the perks available to donors at all levels are bonus episodes and stickers. If you're not ready for that kind of commitment, but you want to help us get some Goo Goo Clusters and Moon Pies, we also have a PayPal account for one-time donations. For links to both of these, please visit notrightpodcast.net and click the Support Us tab. Hello, and welcome to Something's Not Right. I'm Olivia. And I'm Tashana. Tonight I'm going to tell you about a particularly brutal 1968 attack here in Nashville that left one person dead and two critically injured. While I won't be getting into a lot of detail, there is a sexual assault component to this case, so please be aware. We'll be back with the story after a short break. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The information in this episode comes largely from court documents, particularly appellate court decisions. If they are from elsewhere, we're going to note it as we go along. And again, please be advised that the murder in this case is particularly gruesome and there is discussion of sexual assault. John Robert Bolt, a 27-year-old shop apprentice originally from Coleman, Alabama, lived with his wife, 23-year-old Barbara. She called her husband Bobby and their 18-month-old daughter at a home on Edmondson Pike, south of downtown. Neighbors described the family as quiet and Bobby as a, quote, good old country boy from Alabama. Early in the morning of June 15, 1968, the Bolt family slept peacefully in their home. Bobby was in his bedroom his wife, Barbara, who was expecting the couple's second child in about two months, was asleep on the couch. The 18-month-old was asleep in the home's second bedroom. Because you're hearing about it here, you know that that piece didn't last. A man made his way into the Bolt home through the basement. 
While down there, he stocked up on some items, first an axe, then two knives made by Bobby, and finally rubber gloves that Barbara used when she was doing the laundry. The man then took off his shoes and headed up the stairs into the main part of the house. It is smart, though, from a not being able to trace it back to you because you didn't buy it. It's not yours. I mean, I don't, that's just makes me wonder if he'd been in the home before. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. He made his way into Bobby's bedroom and hit the sleeping man at the base of his skull with the axe. The force of the strike severed Bobby's spinal cord and carotid artery, which caused him to bleed to death. And this probably happened around 2 a.m. based on the medical examiner's later determination. Sorry, at first when you said hit him with the axe, I don't know why. This is probably dumb on my part. I don't know why I didn't didn't immediately think with the sharp part of it. Sorry, I know that made it even more graphic, but... No, but I totally get it. It's often phrased that way, and to me... That sort of makes it sound like the person was hit with the flat side of the blade. But in this case, we can deduce from the injuries that it was done with the sharp edge. And unfortunately, the terror in the Bolt house wasn't over. Barbara awoke to the strange man shaking her. She immediately began struggling and screaming for Bobby. She also noticed the blade of a knife sticking out of her arm, which she pulled out. Oh, This caused her to lose consciousness, and she would continue to go in and out during the attack. And she told investigators she begged the assailant to let her see her husband, to which he responded, Okay, I'll take you to that dead son of a bitch. Oh my god. He then took Barbara into the same bedroom where Bobby was lying dead on the bed and sexually assaulted her on the floor. Oh, man. After that part of the attack ended, the stranger pulled on his pants, stepped over her, and took a watch off of Bobby's arm. He stepped over her again and left the room. And I should note here that I could be wrong about him stepping over her. The court documents where I got the information said walking over her, which could mean he literally stepped on her. When I made my notes, I assumed he stepped over her because my instinct as a relatively normal person would not be to walk on a living being. But considering this guy's cruelty, he may have just treated her like literal dirt. Eventually, Barbara tried to get up, only to be knocked unconscious when the man hit her in the head with the axe. It seems as though the stranger believed she was dead leaving him free to rummage through the home. When she next woke up, she saw the stranger going through drawers there in the bedroom before he turned the lights out and exited. However, he came back after a time and started going through the closet. And the next time Barbara woke up, she was in the bed next to her dead husband. Dude. Obviously, everything that happened up until now should have never happened. But to take that step, was just next-level evil. Yeah, that's just sadistic. Barbara said she woke up around 9 a.m. and struggled to the kitchen, where she was able to dial the operator and summon police. After the attack, Barbara spent several days in the hospital with numerous injuries. She had the stab wound in her arm that I mentioned earlier, 
a forehead laceration, a laceration on her right shoulder, a stab wound on one side of her neck, and a laceration on her abdomen. Doctors said she was in satisfactory condition and that the unborn baby was unharmed, though. The 18-month-old had a skull fracture but was also reported in satisfactory condition. Though it took a while for the obviously shaken Barbara to tell her story coherently, she was able to eventually give police a startlingly accurate description of her assailant. At first, she could only remember that he was slender and wasn't even able to say if he was white or black. She included a detail that proved important, though. She remembered he had something in his ear, though she was unable to say if it was a hearing aid or an earpiece to a transistor radio. He's got to listen to the game. I'm sorry, that was terrible. Look, he's not a good person. So that he sounds like the kind of guy that's listening to games at inappropriate times, like killing people. In late June, Metro Nashville police released a sketch based on Barbara's description. A few days after its publication, an interviewer with the Tennessee Department of Employment Security called police and said she'd seen the man in the sketch and that he'd been in the unemployment office the week before. He'd returned to the office, and the interviewer, Anna Faye Kraft, called MNPD to ask if they were still looking for the man in the sketch. And indeed they were. Officers arrived at the unemployment office a few minutes later and arrested James Thomas Jefferson, a 27-year-old odd jobs worker who wore a hearing aid. They were able to take him in without incident, though officers said Jefferson asked if, quote, this is about parking tickets. It was obviously far more serious than that, but Jefferson did indeed have an outstanding warrant for unpaid parking fines. That's a big leap. From unpaid parking tickets to murder, yeah. Barbara was brought in to view a lineup of five men in similar clothing who were made to repeat a statement made to her during the attack. And she immediately and positively identified Jefferson as her attacker without hesitation. Police did remove his hearing aid so it wouldn't cause him to stand out from the other men and taint the lineup. Well, that was smart. She also later identified Jefferson in the courtroom during subsequent trials. That's trials plural, by the way. Okay. Jefferson was carrying two Liberty Dimes and 11 Buffalo Nickels. Y'all, I wish you could see Tashana's face right now. She cannot deal with the Buffalo Nickels. Well, kind of. I mean, I understand the relevance, and this was 68. It's just, maybe I'm just unaware of how common they were back then. Maybe someone can weigh in on that. Maybe everyone was walking around with Liberty Dimes and Buffalo Nickels and wheat back isn't that what they're called pennies sweet pennies yeah i feel like they weren't super rare or super common kind of like now i mean i don't know i'm kind of talking out of my ass i don't really know anything about collectible coins but i don't think it was a hugely remarkable thing but in this case it was the kind of thing a coin collector might have in their home and bobby bolt was a coin collector So these were the type of thing Bobby would have in his home. Jefferson was also wearing a wristwatch, later identified by Bobby Bolt's brother as one Bobby had worn. 
Uh-oh. Though a jeweler had etched Bolt's name on the watch, Jefferson had apparently etched the first five letters of his own name over the top of the jeweler's etchings. That had to look like a hot mess. At trial, a co-worker testified that Jefferson had tried to sell him the watch. Police had also lifted a palm print from the inside of a glove used in the attack, and that palm print matched that of Jefferson. I know fingerprinting had been around for a long time at that point, but that's impressive to me that they were able to lift a print from the inside of a glove way back then. For sure. Well, I mean, again, I feel like that is when people, they started doing more stuff like that, but just to even think to do it. The Davidson County Grand Jury indicted Jefferson July 23rd, 1968, charging him with murder, rape, assault with intent to commit murder on Barbara, and assault with intent against the child. Jefferson was represented by Avon Williams Jr., a prominent figure in the civil rights movement in Nashville and who coincidentally announced his ultimately successful bid for the state Senate the day of the Bolt murder. I thought that name sounded very familiar. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The most incredible thing about Jefferson's first trial was the sheer amount of time the preliminaries took. More than 1,200 potential jurors were called, and it remains the largest jury call in Davidson County history. It took six weeks for Williams and his prosecution counterpart to settle on the required 12 jurors. Williams, in particular, was threatened with contempt and indeed charged with it at least once by an increasingly testy judge. But I want to note here... I read about a million damn newspaper articles about each day of jury selection since it went on so long, again, six weeks. And the judge was actually, at least this is how it sounded in the paper, pretty patient with Williams' tactics for a while. The prosecutor, not so much. There was a lot of argument in the courtroom. But eventually the judge seemed to get fed up, too. Now, I can't remember which case it was, but it has come up before on our show that at one time the potential jurors would be sequestered right there in the county courthouse. Like they had living quarters on one floor there. So it wasn't in a hotel like you might normally hear. Yeah, we've talked about that before. I can't remember which one it was, but I do remember that and thinking, ugh. Essentially, these people lived at the courthouse for six weeks before the trial even started, and they were even served Thanksgiving dinner there. So this incredibly long Guadir situation was like just a real pain in the ass for the jurors, too. It wasn't just the judge. An unnamed source, likely a court officer, told the Tennessean, They're really in good humor after being confined for this long. They're always asking when another juror is going to be selected. 
And when another one goes up there, he'd better be ready for a practical joke. They're probably lost their mind. They're going insane. Right? They're up there playing cards and playing jokes on people because they can't watch TV or read the paper. It's got to be so boring. I've always secretly wanted it. I mean, not secretly, like, wanted to do it. But my luck, I'll get some, like, really boring fucking case. Well, even with an interesting one, there's a lot of boring you have to sit through. Well, sure. I mean, that's fair. I just, it's more, I would want to be involved. I'm just, just to do it at least once. Generally, a jury of 12 requires two alternates, but Tennessee law does allow the judge to impanel a jury of 12 without alternates if there are extraordinary circumstances, which is what happened in this case, as Barbara Bolt, who had since remarried, was eight months pregnant again with another child and was the prime witness in the trial. So the judge ordered the trial to begin without alternates. Basically... He didn't want to risk having to go through like three more weeks to find another two people who were acceptable and also then risk Barbara not being available to testify. As it turned out, the jury, one of the most tediously selected in the history of Tennessee jurisprudence, was unable to reach a verdict and a mistrial was declared. The second trial addressing Bobby's murder began on January 18, 1971. Jury selection, it should be noted, was not nearly as extensive. Jefferson's attorneys made numerous evidentiary challenges, looking to exclude Barbara's identification during the lineup, trying to bar the prosecution from allowing her to show her scars from the knife attack to the jury, and so forth. But the judge allowed virtually all of the evidence to come in. All right, I resent having to bring this part up because I feel like It could be perceived as smearing Barbara, who was a victim, but because of the way it was made a part of the trial, I've got to include it here. I know why a defense attorney would do something like this. I don't like it. I don't feel good about it, but it is what it is. So a police report revealed a neighbor had told the investigating officer, Officer Wade, that Bobby Bolt told her that he'd tape-recorded telephone conversations between Mrs. Bolt and her paramour, Richard Hartman. When Mrs. Bolt ended this affair, however, Hartman continued to call, and it got so persistent that Bobby Bolt had his phone number changed. The police removed numerous audio tapes from the Bolt residence during the ensuing investigation, but evidence as to what was on them was never introduced in trial. Further, Bobby Bolt's brother testified that he, too, recovered audio tapes after the murder. So did they just bring it up as a way to say that there were, was another person that had a motive? Correct. That the tapes never came into evidence would be raised on appeal by Jefferson later, with his attorneys arguing that withholding them prevented the defense from investigating any, quote, animus between Richard Hartman and the Bolts in the days preceding the murder. The appellate court, however, ruled that because Barbara was extensively cross-examined about the affair and revealed numerous sordid details about it, like that she bought Hartman a car, lived with him in a trailer with two other couples for just a couple of weeks, and that he would frequently be at the home while Bobby was at work, 
and that because Hartman himself also testified that the tapes themselves couldn't have offered any further revelations. In any event, the jury ultimately convicted Jefferson of Bobby's murder, sentencing him to 99 years for first-degree murder. Despite numerous efforts at appealing the conviction in an effort to secure a new trial, Jefferson was not successful until 1993 when the U.S. District Court for Middle Tennessee found that there was evidence that African Americans were systematically excluded from the grand jury, which returned the original indictment. A newly impaneled grand jury re-indicted Jefferson, and his third trial began August 9, 1993. In the ensuing decades, numerous exhibits from the original trials, especially large ones such as the rug in the home and the bedclothes, had been lost or destroyed. One of the key witnesses used to independently establish Jefferson's whereabouts, a neighbor who saw a man matching his description on the sidewalk near the Bolt home the morning of the murders, had since developed Alzheimer's. Obviously, she couldn't come in and testify again. Nevertheless, the jury once again convicted Jefferson, this time sentencing him to 40 years in prison. It is worth noting here, by the way, that none of these convictions were for the rape of Barbara Bolt. The original judge, Raymond Leathers, had a practice of not allowing the consolidation of indictments for different crimes if they arose from the same criminal act, which I don't really get. I mean... It just seems like such a waste of time if you've got to pursue each one separately. But this is the way he liked to do things. So back when it first happened, the district attorney chose to begin with the prosecution of the murder and the rape trial was continued. After Jefferson was convicted and sentenced to 99 years, it seems that the DA chose not to pursue the rape charge at all. When Jefferson was re-indicted in 1993, he was once again charged with rape. But Jefferson's attorneys argued successfully that because nearly a quarter century had elapsed from the original indictment with no prosecution even attempted for the rape charge, Jefferson's right to a speedy trial had been violated. After the jury returned the verdict, the DA moved that the judge correct the 40-year sentence to life imprisonment, which, per Tennessee law, was the only allowable sentence for the murder. The judge did so. Later, the appellate court said that the judge was outside of his powers to do so and ordered a new sentencing hearing where, in fact, Jefferson ended up receiving a life sentence. He died in prison in 2014 and Barbara Bolt passed away in 2005. That was a rough one. Moving on to less serious matters, I wanted to let you guys know that we're actually a little bit ahead on our new season of the show. We've got several episodes written, and we're trying to stay ahead of the game this time. And the plan is to get out at least two regular episodes a month. That shouldn't be a problem, plus the Patreon episode but I am hoping to get in more than that. I'm aiming for three a month. Promising to get these things out weekly is just more than we can handle at this point, but we're going to do the best we can to get as many out to you as possible. And as usual, we're always happy to take suggestions too. You can just send those in through our website. 
We want to go to CrimeCon to represent Something's Not Right in Flat Rock this summer, but the organizers aren't going to invite us unless a lot of people tell them they want to see us there. So we're asking you to go to our website and click the link to fill out CrimeCon's quick five-question survey to let them know that you want to see Something's Not Right in Flat Rock there. Let them know that they're getting two shows for the price of one. The link is at the top of our main page, and we really appreciate your help. We'd like to get more exposure for the Kathy Jones case, as well as the many other lesser-known cases we've covered. Thank you, as always, to our patrons Justin for Mysterious Circumstances, Audrey Arndt, Hope Brazel, Patton Fuquay, Allison Klima, Astrid Nyer, Kathy Lind, Janet Logan, and Terry Quillen. Until next time. Bye. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.